Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Pure Hope with your host, Reverend Janice Hope Gorman. Hope is the name the angels gave Reverend Gorman. Help open planetary eyes. And that's what we hope to do on Pure Hope. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to the Pure Hope Show. I'm Reverend Joe Gangstead, Fellowship Minister at Hope Interface Center. I'll be the host for tonight's show. Reverend Janice Hope Gorman, Director and Spiritual Teacher of Hope Interface Center, is recuperating in the hospital from an accident resulting in a severe burn injury. Our prayers and love go out to her. She truly is the guiding light here at HIC. If you'd like to support the Hope Interface Center while Mother Hope heals, we have set up a GoFundMe account. I'll give you that information at the end of our show. Mother Hope, we know you're listening, and we want you to know we love you so dearly. Now, on to our show. Our topic tonight is Dying to Live. Our guest, Stephen Garrett, is all about bringing death back to life in a way that is dignified, human, and sacred. He's all about rebranding the Grim Reaper and changing North Americans' relationship with dying and death from fear and denial to a healthy relationship based on acceptance and inspiration. Stephen's passion for life and death is obvious in his writing, speaking, and teaching. His care for each and every person that crosses his path is supported by over two decades of first-hand experience in the field of social work, adult education, coaching, facilitating, and mentoring. Stephen Garrett is a co-host on Vancouver Coop Radio's Death Matters Live, the founder and editor of We Can Die Better e-magazine, board member of the Memorial Society of BC, a grief and loss trainer for Rhodes Wellness College and founder of both End of Life Guide Training and Alive in Death. He is also the author of the book, When Death Speaks, and soon to be released, Kimasabi Antanto, Riding Side Saddle with Cancer. Tonight's Pure Hope Show is live, and we want to encourage our listeners to call in with any questions you might have for our guests. The number is 213-559-2974. Again, the number is 213-559-2974. So if you have a question, please dial that number, press 1, and our program director, Tom, will put you in the queue to get you on the program. So please... Help me welcome Stephen Garrett to our program tonight. Hello, Stephen. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. How are you tonight? I'm well. It's, uh, it's spring weather here in Vancouver. The sun was out today briefly, and the tulip bulbs have blossomed. So I'm in great spirits and glad to be part of your show. Well, we really welcome you tonight. We have a lot of questions sitting here waiting for you. So here we go. 
Great. Steven, I was noticing when I was becoming familiar with you and your work that you started out as an investment banker. Now, tell me, how does a banker end up as a deaf and dying teacher and trainer? <laughs> That's, I hadn't heard it framed that way in a while. So thanks, Joe, for <laughs> reminding me that, yeah, I, I used to be a stockbroker banker guy. And uh, oddly enough and interestingly enough, uh, how I made the switch from being a, a Wall Street boy to a, a deaf and dying guy is my sister mm-hmm. Jody died past uh, Jody died suddenly and unexpectedly way back in May of 1988, and um, she wasn't supposed to die. She was too young. She was too charismatic. She was too uh, community oriented. She was just too beautiful a woman to die that early, and her death really shook me up in a in a very good way, to be honest. Uh, and I realized as I was trying desperately to negotiate with God to get my sister's life back by offering him my BMW and my ping golf clubs, my money, my suits, all the stuff I had uh, accumulated, um, mm-hmm. that he refused. He just refused. He, he said, no, I, I'm not going to be making a deal with you, Stephen. Your sister Jody's passed away, and you're just going to have to deal with it. And um, it was so clear that I couldn't argue. I had to deal with it. And how I dealt mm-hmm. with it was I realized that, gee, all the work I've done, amassing all these, you know, valuable assets actually wasn't worth a tinker's darn. And I think maybe I should do something else. So instead of being a stockbroker or a banker, perhaps I should become a social worker. So a year after ah. my sister's passing, I, uh, I, just, I just cashed in my chips. I just couldn't. I couldn't do what I was doing any longer because it wasn't really me. Um, mm-hmm. And my sister Jody's death woke me up to the fact that it wasn't really me. I was being my dad, who was a stockbroker. I was being my grandpa, who was a life insurance salesman. I was being my uncle, who was a vice president in a large bank here in Canada. I was being them. I wasn't being mm-hmm. me. So Jody's death um, shone some light on my, uh, on my life, and I chose to listen to it and use death as an inspiration and as a change agent. And uh, a year after her passing, I was out of downtown Toronto when I was out here in Vancouver being a social worker. Wow. What a journey. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was quite death fantastic. Is such a, um, could be such a fearful thing. You know, you talk about... Um, uh, uh, being afraid of death things. So what makes us all so afraid of death or, and dying? Well, what you know what, that I, what I think has happened, I think it's it's very simple, Joy. I, I think if you go back in history 150 years ago, that's not a long time. Mm-hmm. And notice where most North Americans lived. We lived rurally, many of us in, in on acreages, many of us on farms, uh, about 90% of our North American population lived in uh, a rural setting. Um, so we were very much connected with the land, with the seasons, with the harvest, okay. with the birth, with the death. We were really part of the very natural cycle of life and death, including, by the way, the fact that we used to live in homes that were multi-generational. So great-grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids all lived in the same home. Well, oh, yeah. now 150, 150 years later, 
only 11% of us live rurally, and only about 12% of us live in multi-generational homes. So we're just out of touch. In a way, we've forgotten about the natural cycle of life and death. We've forgotten about aging because we're no longer exposed to it as we used to be day to day when we lived rurally. So I think it's that mm-hmm. similar. Okay. And, uh, and wow. you could add a little dose of you know Judeo-Christian fear-mongering and the uh, advent of the Grim Reaper back in the 1340s, and there you have it, a death-denying culture. Mm-hmm. Sure. So how do we change that fear, though? You know, I, I, I've i been to many funerals lately. As I'm getting older, we ha- I'm having more deaths in, of, of friends and so forth. How do we get to that point more of... Um, acceptance, looking at death in a different way than what we have in this this history of, of life. Well, it, it's, a, it's a bit of practice, I have to say, Joe. It, it, and that's not going to sound too inspiring to your listeners or to our listeners, yeah. but uh, I've seen a lot of death and uh, some in my own family. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I was a cremationist with a funeral home, Uh, I saw a lot of death. I saw about 1,500 deaths. Um, So I've gotten used to it. I've gotten accustomed to it, and I've recognized that my very life um, is dependent on death. For example, if I don't eat good vegetables that were once living, if I don't eat good chicken that was once living, uh, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be alive. So my my very life is is dependent on death. And I recognize Mm -hmm. that... um, I need to be a better host when death does come knocking. And uh, so I've just practiced. And I've realized, Uh Joe, that um, when I sit with people who are dying and they share with me some regrets they have about how they've lived their life, Uh um, they're clearly regrets for them because they're on their deathbed. But because I'm living, those deathbed regrets that they share with me become life lessons for me because I'm still living. And so I find at the, at the moments around death, if I'm really listening and paying attention to what people are saying, they're going to inspire me to live even more fully in my own life. Hmm. So Tell me a little a bit more. Practice. Yeah. yeah practice. I'll, can, I'll give you, if I, can, if I can tell you a little story. Um, I love that. I was sitting with a, with a woman who we just call Mrs. Smith. And um, mm-hmm. I was in the hospice here in Vancouver, and, you know, there's two nurses on staff and 12 patients in the hospice and families, and it's just, it's just a crazy time. And one of the nurses comes running by my station and says, Stephen, could you go and sit in room 201 with Mrs. Smith? She's very anxious, and she looks very scared, and we haven't got time to be with her. Could you? So I thought, Okay. So I, I got up from my desk and um, I, I went into room 201 and took mm-hmm. a couple of deep breaths because I noticed that Mrs. Smith was lying in her bed and she was very agitated. Her breathing was very shallow and kind of like rushed, like she was almost like panting. And so I thought, well, what can I do for Mrs. Smith? I, I guess I could sit on a bed and I could lift her body up and place her back on my chest and just put my arms around her and hold her mm. and rock her a bit like I would do for a baby that was having a hard time. So I did that. I just mm-hmm. held her and we just rocked back and forth. And I used my breathing to settle her breath down. And as her breath settled, I laid her back down on the bed and we just sat and held hands for a while. 
she came uh, came awake and she said, oh, Stephen, she said, can I tell you something? And I said, sure, go right ahead. And she said, you know, I loved my husband very, very much over the years, but okay. I always held 5% of my love back and I don't think I should have done that. And she said the word 5%. It's like, wow, okay. Oh. And and I, I just... I just thanked her because what a gracious gift she offered me of sharing the guilt she felt around not loving her husband as fully as she knew she could. And about mm-hmm. three hours later, she passed away, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and God bless her for getting free of that kind of guilt that she was carrying with me. So what I did was I thought, man, that woman was so generous. She was so kind to me and gave me that lovely gem of wisdom in the form of a deathbed regret. I wonder if there's some people in my life that I'm not loving as fully as I could. And, of course, my mother-in-law came up, and my wife and my boys and my own mom. I thought, oh, yeah, there it is, you know. So on Mrs. Smith's generosity and on her passing, I made a vow that I would love those five people 5% more than I already oh, was. That's so lovely. I didn't want to, yeah, like I, I didn't want to be on my deathbed looking up at you, Joe, going, oh, Joe, you know, I held my love back about 5%. I don't think I should have done that. I want yeah. to be able to die on my deathbed looking at you going, wow, I sure love my heart alive. I sure loved as fully as I could. Yes. So that's what I mean by death could be inspiring if only we're able to sit with it and be a bit more gracious. Well, your story kind of reminds me a little bit. I also have been a hospice volunteer, and I sat with a, uh, an older man uh, while his wife and daughter went out to do errands. And we just chat, chatted, and I really, you know, it was a lovely chat. And as I was leaving, I touched the daughter's arm, and I said to her as I'm going out the door, your father is so proud of you. And she turned and looked at me and she said, I've never, ever, ever heard that before. Wow. And I, too, really received a lesson through that. So, oh, wow. The things we can learn through death. Yep. It's uh, it's interesting. You know, I've had a lot of spiritual teachers over the years. Um, mm-hmm. You know, teachers from Egypt, teachers from Africa, teachers from Peru, teachers mm-hmm. from, you know, the First Nations in North America, teachers from Hawaii, you know, Hope, mm-hmm. you know, all these sorts of teachers. One of yes. my most reliable and dependable teachers is death. Mm-hmm. And if I'm able to look at death in a more open-hearted way, with a bit more mm-hmm. acceptance about its natural place in my life, Gosh, I can sure learn a lot about living. Yes, isn't that true? Most, most of, yeah, because most of what I, I teach is, is all about life. It's not about dying at all. It's all about living as opposed to dying to live. Mm. So how do you go about teaching others these lessons that you've been learning? Well, everybody has this wisdom in them as far as I can see, maybe in different books or in different experiences or in in, in different ways. But uh, what I help people do is I help them inspect their own lives much as I have inspected mine and help them look for the gems of wisdom that reside in the 
sea of grief that we often experience. Um, most of us focus on the grief, which is appropriate to do, but many of us don't look for the gifts that our loved one has left behind. So we only get half the equation. We get that kind of heavy, dark, griefy stuff because we forget mm-hmm. to look around and celebrate the life that was lived and see all the lessons that our loved one left behind. You know, my okay. sister Jody was a great example. Her death actually resulted in my coming to life. My brother's wow. passing actually resulted in me living my life even more passionately and even more fully. So beside each death, there's always a little gift. There's always a, a wisdom present there for us if only we would learn how to look for it. Mm-hmm. And is that what you do a, in your workshops, in your trainings? Do you, do you work with yep. people or groups of people. Tell us a little bit more about your work and how you, you're changing some of these, these views of death. Sure. I, um, I work with individuals or families and oftentimes teach in groups. I just completed okay. some teaching uh, with a group of about 20 people over on Vancouver Island. And it was oh. all about helping people learn Uh, how to prepare for their end of life so that they can die better. And it was helping them learn how to sit with somebody who is dying because we're just out of practice. Mm -hmm. We typically leave that kind of stuff for the spiritual care providers or practitioners. We kind of leave that stuff for the doctors and the nurses or the funeral home directors. We tend not to get so involved in that stuff ourselves to our own loss. So I just Mm -hmm. teach people how to become more comfortable with their own mortality first and foremost. And then secondarily, how to become comfortable with the mortality of their loved ones and their family members. And, you know, we do that. Sometimes I, I create these crazy ideas that seem to work. I just finished a workshop called uh, dying to live where we spend about three or four hours just reviewing our lives that we've lived so far. What have we done that we feel good about? What, what have we not done? What would we like to do more of? What relationships weren't quite the way we wanted them to be? How was it with my mom and my dad? Just all that kind of house cleaning work as if we're going to be dying that night. And I have them write a, a love letter to their family as if they were to be dying that night. So it becomes uh, kind of a real as-if exercise. And um, I I rented a bunch of caskets and I laid everybody in a casket and closed the lids for a while to have them have a visceral experience of being in a casket. And that one day they would be in a casket for real. And Mm -hmm. part of me was a little concerned that I'd gone a step too far, but the (laughs) the feedback I got from the participants was breathtaking. Uh And many of them, and we had people as young as 26 and as people as old as 86 and everything mm-hmm. in between. Most of them said, wow, you know, this sure helps me realize that some of the stuff I worry about isn't really worth worrying about. And some of the stuff mm-hmm. I make mountains out of really are molehills. And it, it, it was helping people recognize that maybe they could put their attention on some areas of their life that would be more meaningful instead of the small mm-hmm. stuff. And that's wow. what death does. It, 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 it helps us see what's important versus what's a bit more egoic or what's a bit more selfish. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. 
I don't know. Laying in a casket would be quite an eye-opener for me. That's for well, sure. It, it's a challenge. But, you know, here's the thing, Joe, that I've learned is that our fear of death, if we don't mm-hmm. face it, will hold us up in life because all death is really is something existed and now it doesn't. So that's a definition of change. Sure. So if I'm death adverse or death afraid or death denying, I'm going to be mm-hmm. change denying or change adverse or risk adverse. Oh. So I won't live my life as fully as I could just in case. Um, or I'll, I'll stay in a relationship too long or I'll stay in a job too long when I really know mm-hmm. I should leave it. But because I don't know what's at the end of it, what comes after it, which is like mm-hmm. death, I'll stay. And so we tend to mute our life a little bit by not embracing our death more fully. I can see that very clearly. Oh, wow. Yep. You um, Also, I think some of your other workshops was called something about a, a death cafe. Or di- yep. Did you have some, what, tell me about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, a death cafe began in London, England. A fellow by the name of John Underwood thought, oh, you know, we British, we're just, we're so death adverse. I think I got to do something about it. So he created this opportunity for people to get together in community, in cafes, and talk about the meaning of dying and death as it pertains to life. It's mm-hmm. not a grief support group. It's not therapy. It's not uh, talk counseling. It's just a group Mm -hmm. of people gathered together who talk about what death means to them and how it could inform their life. And um, there's about 4,500 have occurred in the world since it began about four years ago. I've run death cafes here in Vancouver for about four years. Mm -hmm. And we've had as many as 44 people show up and as few as six. We've had teenagers to uh, octogenarians show up and everybody in between and uh, both genders. And the beauty of it is, it's my belief that grief is a community affair. It's not a, a solo event. And that to have a community able to embrace grief for all their community members is a sign of a healthy community. So the mm-hmm. Death Cafe is a way to do that. So what's the main topic? What, what comes up most often at your Death Cafes? Well, you know, what they're the all so unique. They're all so unique, Joe. They, 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 they change from month to month, from year to year. It depends mm. on who's in the room and, and who's showing up. Sometimes suicide shows up as a topic. Uh, sometimes uh, embalming shows up as a topic. Mm. Uh, sometimes um, ritual and ceremony and celebration show up. Uh, okay. Often there's questions about, well, what does grief look like? What does it sound like? How do you know you're grieving well? Um, mm-hmm. All kinds of questions. You know, what's on the other side of death is is quite often a a, a topic of great conversation. And uh, oh, sure. what I've what I've learned, Joe, what I've learned that's interesting is I used to think that nobody wanted to talk about death and dying. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to talk about it. They just don't know where to talk about it, when to talk about it, how to talk about it, or who to talk about it with. And those mm-hmm. four questions are answered by the Death Cafe. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Do you have, do, we'll do one when I come down to your place. Do the younger people ask different questions 
than the elders? Absolutely. Um, you know, because the youngers seem like they're a long way away from the end of their life. Uh-huh. The elders are way closer. The, the elders often ask questions about um, what is it like on the other side? Okay. The youngers sometimes ask questions about what's it like to die? And um, so there's it, just different takes on it. Some of the young folks who come have experienced uh, loss of a friend by suicide or by car accident uh, or by drugs and alcohol. And so those sorts of topics come up and there's questions about, well, you know, if they were killed in a car accident, will their soul be okay? Um, some, sometimes we talk about near-death experiences. And people have been brought back to life by CPR or paddles. So it just depends. Mm-hmm. And it's wide-ranging, and uh, it's, it's very enlivening. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I always look at suicide as probably one of the more difficult death situations. Can you give, yeah. us, give our listeners some words of advice? If we have a family yeah, member who we've lost or suicide? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I just got back from working with uh, some First Nations people up in the north of oh. Canada where they're experiencing mm-hmm. a great number of suicides. And the thing I noticed there that I also noticed here in, in North America in the larger urban centers, when the suicide occurs, there's a lot of want to figure it out. Like, why did so-and-so do this? And a lot of trying to make sense of the suicide. Mm-hmm. For me, and what I try and encourage people to do is let that go. We'll never make sense of it. The person uh-huh. who committed suicide is now dead. As opposed to trying to make sense of the suicide, let's mm-hmm. instead make meaning of their life. Oh, I love And so that. I help them. Yeah, because it, and, and a lot of us get guilt-ridden, you know, when, when a suicide occurs. Number one, it's very shocking. It happens suddenly mm-hmm. and unexpectedly and oftentimes not without much notice. So it's a bit like getting punched from behind on the chin. It's like mm-hmm. you're on your knees unconscious. You don't even know what hits you. So suicide's a bit like that. So there's oftentimes numbness or kind of a, a, a stunned sort of feeling like this can't be real. Sure. Um, that's part of it. Uh, and then along right beside that is, is often the question, well, if only I had picked up the phone and called Harry today. Mm-hmm. If only I hadn't have said blah, blah, blah to George. If only. So we go through this list of things that we could have done in our estimation that might have pre- prevented the suicide. And that's not helpful either. It's natural, but it's not particularly helpful. I think the uh, most helpful thing to do is, is uh, make meaning of the life that was lived and avoid trying yeah. to make sense of, of the suicide. Yes. Also, Joe, if, if, if death mm-hmm. is taboo in our culture, suicide is even more so. And if people don't know what to say about a natural death, they mm-hmm. really don't know what to say about a suicide. And so oftentimes what happens is the community pulls back from the family because they mm-hmm. feel so ill-prepared to handle of suicide and what the family must be going through. So mm-hmm. there's kind of a silent grief process that goes on. There's a great book out by that very name called Silent Grief. And it's what happens to a family when suicide occurs. And they typically mm-hmm. tend to get very isolated and they feel very alone 
because nobody mm-hmm. knows what to say or do or how to talk about it. Wow. And, you know, I and just... oftentimes we... Sorry. Uh, oftentimes we try and not use the word suicide. We try and minimize it or somehow uh, clean it up a little bit, but uh, it, that doesn't work either. Mm-hmm. I, I, yes, it's, it's just very difficult to to talk about. I just had a friend who said, you know, I, we had a death in our family, and, and we get phone calls and people say, what can I do? And what we would prefer them to is just to do something, not yes. to ask, because we can't tell you what to do. We're in a state of despair, of, of unbelief. Um, just do something. Yep. Just say, yep. smile at me. <laughs> you know, that's, and that's for, for our listeners tonight, that's a very good piece mm-hmm. of advice. Um, most people who I work with um, say exactly the same thing. I just wish somebody would bring me over some macaroni and cheese <laughs> and a glass of red wine. You know, I just wish somebody would put my garbage out. Stop asking me what you can do for me and do something. And, mm-hmm. and I, 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 I get the importance of that because what happens for people is they leave the frontal lobe of their brain, which is where all the rational decisions are made, and they're living more from the emotional center. So they can't make a rational decision for love and money anyways. And on top of that, they've got 150 decisions to make around the end-of-life needs of their loved one. So the last thing they want to think about is somebody says, well, what can I bring over? They've got to then go into the logical part of their brain and try and figure something out, and they can't. Mm. uh, So it's oftentimes better just to walk over to the door, knock on the door, and I brought some soup and some bread for you guys just in case you're hungry. Yeah. And, and just make those offers to the family. Um, hey, I, I know you guys need some time alone. Why don't you go out for a walk? I'll take care of the children for you. Mm-hmm. The grass needs it, cutting. So instead of saying, hey, do, do you need your yeah. grass cut? Just go mow their lawn for them. You know, things like that are very important. Yeah, there's a point of respecting um, their need for grieving, but it's also, as you say, just a, a short visit, the cutting of the grass, can alleviate some of that um, that time that where they crawl into the the walls of their house and don't come out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's correct. And there's also an interesting thing that happens, Joe, is about two or three weeks after the funeral, after the formal celebration of life, or after that kind of formal community completion there's a natural pullback of support where people who haven't experienced the loss close at hand because it was a friend or somebody down the street or a distant relative, they get back to their normal life. And, and so there's this pullback of support, which is quite natural. And if the family's not prepared for it, they may feel left alone or deserted. And so Mm -hmm. what I do with families is I tell them, you know, Two or three weeks into this thing, once your loved one's been cremated or buried, um, there's going to be a natural withdrawal of support from your community. I just want you to know that so you're ready for it and you don't take it personally. If you need more support, let's make a schedule and let's get some of your friends to pop by a little bit more often than maybe they would. 
and mm-hmm. and that's very very helpful because um, people can feel very very alone uh, when that support that community kind of outpouring stops. So so you you're helping them plan ahead. Because, as you say, they're very busy when the death actually occurs. They're busy with the plans of the funeral or the cremation or the celebration of life. And as time goes on, the death actually really hits them. That's correct. But they don't realize that it was. That's correct. Yep. And so what I try and help them notice is each family has um, interesting dates that they observe. Uh, the, the, the writings around grief and loss call them notable dates. So what I do is I have the family make a list of their own important dates. You know, mom's birthday, uh, when mom and dad got married, if mom was the one who passed away, um, mm-hmm. when there were special family gatherings. I just have them list them out on a calendar, especially for the first year, because mm-hmm. those first notable dates where your loved one isn't there uh, can be very traumatic if you don't prepare for them, uh, especially oh, yes. things like birthdays and anniversaries. So I, I do my best to have people get a calendar out and notice these dates, and let's have some discussions about what we could do to honor mom or our loved one on their birthday, even though they're dead. Because mm-hmm. if we don't talk about it before that day, it'll be the pink elephant in the room and there'll be this awkwardness like what do you say and should we have bought her a birthday present or should we have had a place set for her at the table or could we have had a picture of her up on the, you know, on the, on the mantle? Uh, let's have those conversations ahead of time so when the, the notable dates do come, we're ready for them and we're not okay. surprised and there's not those heavy silent moments that could have been avoided. Right. They can, they can go on to celebrate the life that their loved one lived rather than, exactly. you know, I keep addressing the death over and over. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. You know, Shakespeare, love- William Shakespeare had it right. He said uh, back in whenever he, he was alive, I can't remember the dates of him, but uh, he said, parting is such sweet sorrow. He used those two words together. And in North American culture, we, we tend to put too much weight on the sorrow side and not mm-hmm. enough balance on the sweet side. Mm-hmm. Mm. So when do you have these conversations with the families? What, when do you do the, this planning ahead? Well, it's, uh, for me and my family, we've already done that planning. We have uh, what I call in my, in my home a death binder. Uh, it sounds horrible, but that's just what it is. It's a binder about my death. Mm-hmm. And in my death binder is a, a letter from my lawyer um, mm-hmm. who can speak for me medically, what I want and don't want from the medical system, my last will and testimony, um, plans for the celebration of my life, uh, my membership in a society that's going to take care of my cremation and my ashes, all, it's all done. Um, mm-hmm. And so my, my family and I are familiar with all its contents, including my children. Mm-hmm. And, and we all know where it is and we all know what it's about. So 
we're we're really early and really ready. For many yes. people, about eighty five percent of the population, nobody wants to talk about it. So what happens is we wait until it's almost too late. Um, mm-hmm. Six months out, two weeks out sometimes, days out sometimes. Um, and mm-hmm. the closer to death we have our conversations, um, the more challenging it's going to be. The mm-hmm. further away from the death we have these conversations, uh, the more graceful it will be and the more graceful the death and dying will be. Well, I think by talking early, we're talking without all that emotional grieving um, that that might alter your thinking. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're planning ahead and you're able to say, oh, you know, maybe this is what I really would like. Or, or you know, and everybody can look at it and it's not just the elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about. Yep. So the, I, I like the last that. Thing, planning ahead. Yeah, the, the, the last thing, Joe, that a family wants or that I would want for my family is to have everybody hanging around my hospital bed with their backs to me, talking with a doctor about what to do with me and my body and my illness. That's the last thing I want to have happen. Because, you know, you're in emergency or you're in an intensive care unit or you're in the hospital, and everybody's emotions are all fired up. You're not going to get a great decision. So that's why being ahead of the game a little bit is for all of our best interests. Mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. for the survivors. Well, I, I was lucky enough that my mother was a planner, and she and I went and we picked out her casket Oh, long, long time before we even thought she might pass on. And we actually had a good time. We laughed, and 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 she said, Oh, you know, I want that really fancy one, and we decided, no, maybe that wasn't really what we needed. I mean, there's humor in all this, too. You know, I there mean, if we can look at death is really just part of living. And as yeah. you said earlier, there are some things that just aren't as important. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. You just mentioned something, Joe, that's very important, uh, humor. And, um, you know, people get all tied up in knots about laughing at a funeral or laughing at somebody's deathbed or, you know, laughing is, you know, we, we, we tend to put our humor and our laughter away. And mm-hmm. um, that's, so, that's so not helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, when my bro- dear brother Peter was dying a couple of years ago, um, I remember walking into his room at the Vancouver General Hospital, and he looked bad. He, you know, people get that grayish, yellowish color when they're yeah. getting closer to death. And he was doing some more chemotherapy and, I've got this uh, irreverent uh, sense of humor, and I couldn't help myself. I walked into his room. The doctor's there. The nurse's there. My mom is there. His two sisters are there. His wife's there. And I say, oh, good morning, Kiwosabi. How are you doing today? And uh, he said to me, oh, Tonto, not very well. So the book that I've just completed that will be published later this year is called Kiwosabi and Tonto riding side saddle with cancer. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But that humor, my mom, my mom was a little like, she said, oh, Stephen, don't be so rude. And my brother put up his hand and said, mom, I needed a good laugh. Let him be him. 
In other words, mm-hmm. she wanted the humor back in the room because it was too heavy. Yes. And it's not that the humor is going to squash or, or replace the sadness or the pre-grieving. It's just going to bring balance to it. It's all about mm-hmm. the balance. Mm. Yes. Uh, I, 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 I know many friends who have a great senses of humor, and, and they've gone through illnesses, and there's been all kinds of jokes about different things. And it really, it not only lightens the life of, of the person dying, but like you say, everybody in the room, they get lightened the whole thing up for everyone. Yeah. So yeah. humor is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I've also had it's a all, few it's all, Go ahead. It's, it's all about balance, Joe, you know, and, and a little bit of humor is helpful, and too much humor is sometimes a distraction. It's just always finding that, that ah. sweet spot, that healthy balance. Okay. Because humor can also cover things yep. and not let it come to light is what you're saying. Yep, exactly. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about I've been to, instead of funerals in the last couple of years, I've been going to a lot of celebrations of life. I have one friend who was in theater with me at one point, and all she wanted was a great big party. And it literally yep. was a great big party with a band and music and different people getting up and just telling wonderful stories. So yep. can you talk a little bit about alternatives to funerals? Yeah, and you just, you just nailed it beautifully, Joe. Um, a, a lot of people are recognizing that they want to celebrate more the life that was lived along mm-hmm. with missing the person who's just died. And sometimes people feel that the, the funeral uh, or the heady kind of um, Catholic approach or the, the kind of dark mm-hmm. um, approach isn't what they want to do. I've had people mm-hmm. celebrate the life of their loved one at a golf course. We've had people celebrate the life of a loved one on a sailboat at the top of a mountain mm-hmm. in their favorite park. Um, you know, I have a, a couple of friends who are uh, alternative funeral directors, and uh, mm-hmm. they spend most of their time helping families plan the celebration, uh, the kind mm-hmm. of after-death party, uh, a bit like the Irish wakes, you know. And they're getting more and more common. And if the funeral business isn't careful, um, they're going to be left out of a a lot of these celebrations because it's no longer as vogue as it used to be to go to a chapel and sit in a church and all this religious stuff. It's way more um, popular for people to celebrate the life that was lived and doing so outdoors or in the family home or out by the family lake or, you know, by a barbecue. There's so many things that can be done differently that include mm-hmm. all the things that you would have included had the person still been alive. Yeah, it's, so it's seeing, just been very, very fun, actually, to go to a lot of these celebrations of life. Um, that's kind of a funny way to put it, but we really got well, to enjoy their lives by going back and absolutely. telling stories. Absolutely. And why wouldn't we? We had the yes. good fortune to have known them. And why wouldn't we celebrate? You know, my mm-hmm. dear late friend Stacy um, was a belly dancer. It was her hobby. So at her celebration of life, her whole belly dancing group came and danced. 
as if she were there and danced for her and danced for everybody else. It was fantastic. And why wouldn't you do that? You know? Everybody stood in a big circle and everybody chipped in and everybody could share or not share. And everybody brought food and everybody had a good time and had some sadness and Miss Stacy and cried for her loss. And then we told some more jokes. And it was just this full celebration that was, mm. it was lovely. Mm. Held by her favorite beach. Oh, lovely. I think I'm going to start planning my celebration now. So my family knows way yeah. ahead of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've told, I've told my boys that uh, they've got to play Beatles music. They've got to play some Rolling what? Stones. And they've got to play some Billy Joel. There we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start on that right after this interview tonight. Well, maybe not right Great. away, but in the next couple days or so. So what else awesome. would you like to be sharing with us tonight? Well, just a wish that, um, you know, folks would uh, start to embrace the fact that we can renovate or change our relationship with death, that we can rebrand death, if you will. And that, uh, you know, there's lots of people out there that are now kind of joining the choir of We Can Die Better. Um, And not to be shy about it. If you want to talk about death and dying, hop on my website, you know, stephengarrett.ca, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-A-R-R-E-T-T.ca, and have a look. There's all kinds of tools and places and things to talk about. And In a way, uh, I'm cheering for death to become fully back mm-hmm. in life so that we can all live an even more passionate life. That's primarily yes. it. Okay. You, ta- you just talked about the choir. Um, I, I saw on your e-magazine that you wrote an article saying the choir is finding itself. Tell me about that. Well, it's, um, death for a long, long choir? time has been very, very taboo. And what the choir mm-hmm. means is, it's people like myself or other people who are death midwives or death doulas or end-of-life coaches or end-of-life guides. And we used to be sparse in numbers, but, and we're still sparse in numbers, but we're starting to recognize each other and find each other on the Internet, at workshops, and at celebrations of life. So the choir is trying to group together We're starting to Mm -hmm. sing a refrain that's a lot more about we can die better. We can die with more grace, more humanity, more dignity, and and more life, actually. Sure. Very good. I I, I like that kind of a choir. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a choir, Joe, called the um, Threshold Choir. They've got 165 of them around the world. And they'll actually come to somebody's deathbed and sing a cappella for them as they pass. It's breathtakingly breathtakingly beautiful for the one dying and for those who survive the death. It's it's beautiful. Oh, it has to, because that would, as a survivor, I would would remember that singing, that music, more than my loved one probably taking their last breath. Yep. Does that make sense? And. It makes total sense. And the fact that they're singing live a cappella mm-hmm. and it's not a tape recorder, the, there's mm-hmm. something about the vibration of the voice and the yes. heart that's connected to the voice that fills the room with this 
Beautiful mm-hmm. sound. It's 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 exquisite. Well, it's it's pure love frequency, is what it is. This is what it Absolutely. sounds like to me. Yes, yes. And what a way to go. And what a way to go. Oh, say, I understand, Stephen, that you might be coming to Mankato, Minnesota. You're right here. I am coming. I am coming on down sometime around, I think it's June 8, 9, 10, 11, I'll be down there. I believe at the Hope Interfaith Center, there's the um, ordination of some new reverends. There are. I understand that. Yes, exactly. How congratulations. It's such a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful program. I think I told you earlier, I've been ordained for quite a few years through this, through Pure Hope, and, and all I can say is it's a total blessing. So how wonderful that you will be ordained, and I'll get to meet you personally then. Yeah, and so I thought while <laughs> I'm down there doing this lovely ceremony that uh, – uh, Janice is going to uh, to run for us all. I could also offer some of my end of life training. So I sent Janice a bunch of stuff, and uh, we'll set some dates, and uh, we'll do some work around uh, dying better and planning better, and what it would look like to sit with somebody dying, and how can we do that better? And just a just a, a very gentle uh, yet important look at uh, end of life considerations and, and end of life education. Mm-hmm. How exciting! Well, yeah. welcome, welcome, welcome to Mankato. Yes. So, if you have some, you know, what are some more wise words you might have for our listeners tonight? We have a little bit left of our program, and um, wondering what are those last things you might want to share with us? Something I've been working on of late is helping people understand that dying, death and grief are actually a form of art. Um, It's not a science. Oftentimes Uh people ask me, well, what's the formula? Or, you know, isn't there one thing that they should do first? Or everybody's looking Uh for the recipe or the roadmap. And Uh from what I've gathered over my years of experience, uh, grief does not have a roadmap. And there is no one way or no right way to grieve. Each body uh, out there, each person, each individual has their own unique way to grieve. And um, we need to learn that that's the case. And we need to support each other in their own individual expression of grief and not try and make it all the same. Sure. So that's one thing that I've I've gotten is that grief is an art form. Mm hmm and if we can look at it as an art form that um, will help us from judging others as they yes. go through their grief. That's I like the word correct. Of, I like that word of art. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really an art form. And, you know, I, I've noticed over the years that I have to approach each individual, even if they're in the same family, in a way that works for them. And there's not any one way mm-hmm. to even treat one whole family. If there's six family members, there's six different ways to grieve. And I need to be attuned to that and help each person grieve in their own unique and beautiful way. Yes. Um, I think we might have a No, I was checking to see if we had a question from our listener, but I guess not. So um, sorry to interrupt you. 
No problem. Well, we, um, so you, uh, tell me more about what you were just saying. Yeah, it's just, it's just, um, it's like they say that every snowflake is unique and different. So mm-hmm. does every human being. So each mm-hmm. human being has their own recipe for their own, their own walk with grief, their own journey with grief. And if I can mm-hmm. find out what their recipe is, I'll be very truly helpful for them. If okay. I try and have them grieve my way, it's not going to be so helpful. Sure, sure. And through that, is, that means that you're a great listener and that you're able to really hear and, and what others need and what they're really about. Yeah. You know, oftentimes I think that's... listening, oftentimes listening to the space between the words, not so much the words, because words can sometimes be distracting. Sure. So it's, tell me more about that, though. You know, I, well, sometimes, I, that yes, some, yeah, sometimes sitting in silence can be very disturbing because it's silence. Mm-hmm. And we're so used to filling the silence up with noise. But if you can mm-hmm. learn to breathe and sit in silence and just wait until there's this heart urging to speak or to move or to do something, we'd likely serve people a lot better. We sometimes mm-hmm. rush too quickly to fill the space of silence with something because the silence feels so uncomfortable. Yes. So but let's, we go let's get accustomed to the silence. Get accustomed to the signs and then trust yourself that you'll know when to speak and when not to speak. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Exactly, 100% correct. You know, we, we forget to go within and really trust. Trust that heart of ours to tell us what to say and what to do sometimes. And, and we need to just much, be much more trusting of ourselves. Absolutely. We have just a few minutes left, and um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Let me just think. We've, we've gone over most the of my questions. Yeah, we have. We've done a great job. Yeah. I, I think what I would encourage people to do is just start talking about end of life and death and dying, mm-hmm. even just a little bit more every so often. Okay. Especially if you're a parent and you got kids and you got a mother and father who are older than you, mm-hmm. just start talking about it gently at the beginning and let's just get on with the conversation. Yes, very good. So again, if we want to learn a little bit more about you and your work, what was that website we should go to? Well, I'll give you two of them. Okay. Uh, one is uh, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, dot C-A. Mm-hmm. And the other, one is, the other one is We Can Die Better, dot com. And there we can and read a little those... bit more about your work. and. Yeah. And if any of your listeners want to get in touch with me, uh, my email address is on both those sites, and I'd be happy to answer any questions anybody has. And uh, I'm just really happy we had this time together, Joe, and I'm looking very much forward to uh, meeting you and having our first hug. Oh, I am looking very forward to that, Stephen. 
I want to thank you so very, very much for being on our program tonight. And yes, here comes June. Here you coming to Mankato is just, well, well, I can't wait for that hug. So thank you for looking, helping us look at death. My pleasure entirely. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Those, Those who have learned to love life find it easier to embrace death. Like water evaporating from a saucer, they melt into its arms, peacefully and without resistance. Both in living and in dying, they inspire countless others. I want to thank all the listeners for taking time to listen to our Pure Hope show tonight and to thank Stephen one more time to teach us more about how to look at death and how to bring it back to life in a way that is dignified, human, and sacred. Please join us next month with our guest, Carolyn O'Ryan, on Tuesday, May 30th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We will hear the collective speaking through here about aligning with our soul's power, reclaiming and remembering our soul's identity, strengths, and abilities. But before we go, I want to encourage you all to support the Hope Interface Center by going to www.gofundme.com slash Hope Interface Center. Hope, Janice Hope Gorman and her family want to express their appreciation for all the prayers and the cards. She's so deeply grateful and relieved to have the GoFundMe activity to help cover ongoing costs at the Hope Interface Center while she recovers. Good night, Hope. Sleep well. Until we meet again, namaste, namaste, namaste. Thank you for tuning in to Pure Hope by Rev. Janice Hope Gorman. And until next time, remember that true greatness consists in being great in the little things. Be kind. Be gentle. Be loving. Be true.